Let's all turn in our Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in chapter 10 this morning, looking at verses 32 to 45. I titled this morning's message, True Greatness. Father, we lift up, Lord, this time in your word. And, and Lord, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We learn, Lord, from your words, from your from the truths of your word. Lord, we learn more and more about you. And Lord, as we look at your, your word this morning, we're going to look at true greatness. We're going to see true greatness this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would speak, Lord, into our hearts, that you would stir your church, stir your people, Lord, those that are here this morning sitting here and those that are just watching online uh, this morning, that you would stir the hearts of your people. And Lord, we have a work to do. We have a job to do. You've given us a task, Lord, as a church, as individual Christians, to be a witness in this desperate world that we're living in. Lord, would you use us would you teach us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, uh, as I've shared uh, over the last uh, couple weeks, uh, it's a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus was leaving that upper region of Galilee, and now he was making his way towards Jerusalem. His disciples were with him. And we are really only talking about, in chapter 10 here, we're really only talking about months away from the cross. Actually, when you get to Mark chapter 11, you'll see that it starts out with the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. That places the timeline here that it's only a week away from Jesus going to the cross. 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. And from 11 to 16, that's the last seven days of Jesus' life uh, before the cross. We saw in this chapter 10, we saw how the Pharisees came to Jesus on, a, on an occasion to test him. They wanted to test him with the question of divorce. They knew that this question of divorce uh, was an area that they might be able to trap Jesus on it because of the, the various views about it. But as we know, you can't trap Jesus. You can't put Jesus in a place where you're going to trip him up. And he had the, the perfect answer for these religious Pharisees. We also saw in this chapter how Jesus, as he sat in a room, these parents brought these little children around Jesus and he took them up in his arms. And he began to pray for them and he began to, to bless these little children. And Jesus needed to teach his disciples another lesson from this. They wanted to keep, always keep the children away. They thought it was really a bother to the Lord. And Jesus taught them 
a lesson about the little children and, and even about the mind of a child and how the mind of a child is closer to the kingdom of God than many times when we become adults. Clear understanding sometimes for a child. It's also in this chapter that Jesus spoke with the rich young ruler. He came running to Jesus that day and he asked Jesus that most important question, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Great question. And Jesus, the master evangelist that he was, he began to address this young man uh, over the question of eternal life, how he could have eternal life. And he told this rich young ruler to go sell all that he had, give to the poor, and then come and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. The disciples, with Jesus witnessing, his way of witnessing to this young man, they were confused. In the moment, they thought, you know, if a, if a rich man who they thought was God's blessing upon this young man's life, if he couldn't be saved, if he couldn't enter into the kingdom of God, then what hope would there be for us? What hope would we have if, if this young man who has the blessing of God upon him, that if it's impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God, what hope is there for us? But we all know that all of us here that maybe lived our life for many years rejecting Christ, the people that were praying for you to come to know Christ. They thought you were an impossibility to come to know Christ. And here you are this morning saved. And look what God has done. He drew you and he responded and, and he gave you eternal life. And, and Jesus taught his disciples that day a lesson from this rich young ruler. He says, for what's impossible for man is possible with God. You see, all things are possible with God. And those are, that's a verse that really rings in our ears, one that we hold as Christians so dear to our heart. With God, all things are possible. And that has application to so many things in our life. We finished in verse 31. You can look at your Bibles. With Jesus giving this exhortation to his disciples, he says this. He says, but many who are first will be last. And the last first. I want you to keep those words in your mind as we look at this topic of what is true greatness to God. You see, true greatness in man's perspective is not always true greatness with God. We place true greatness quite often upon the wrong people, upon the wrong, you know, it, it, that's not God's perspective of what true greatness is. Remember back in chapter 8, where Jesus, for the first time, was going to reveal to his disciples that he was the suffering Messiah. This was a new revelation for the disciples. They were coming to grips with the fact that he was in fact the Messiah. 
the one that they had been waiting for, that he had arrived and, and they were looking for that coming kingdom. But when Jesus began to speak about the Messiah being a suffering Messiah, that was confusing to them. They struggled with that whole thought. A suffering Messiah. In verses, verse 31 of chapter 8, we read that Jesus began to teach them. You see, this was a new revelation. It was something they needed to come to understand. He said to them in this first occasion, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That was the first time that he even brought this revelation to the disciples. Peter in verse 33, he didn't understand. It didn't make sense to Peter what Jesus had just said about himself. And, and not only did he not understand, but he actually rebuked Jesus. Just think of that, rebuking Jesus. He rebukes Jesus on this occasion. And Jesus turns around and begins to rebuke Peter for what he just said. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Which clearly tells us that Peter had not, and, and rightfully so, he didn't yet have a connection. He didn't yet have an understanding about a suffering Messiah. And then in verse 34, he calls the people that were there that day, he calls them around himself with the disciples, and he says to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You see, what Jesus was teaching his disciples were things that were quite often contrary to our very human nature. Very contrary to our makeup. They don't always make sense to us either, does it? The things that we read in scripture sometimes, they, 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 they contrast with our, our human nature and who we are. What is true greatness? And many of us have got that wrong at times in our life. When we deemed people, uh, people that we deemed as being great, and in God's perspective, there really weren't. That was the first time that Jesus spoke of his death and the cross to his disciples. That was chapter 8. In chapter 9, and this is going in chronological order, we see Jesus once again bringing up this subject to his disciples. Look at your Bibles at 931. For Jesus again taught his disciples, and he said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But then it says this, But they did not understand this saying, 
and they were afraid to ask him. Uh, they were actually intimidated by this whole thought of a suffering Messiah, their Messiah being killed. And then the whole thought of the Messiah then raising from the dead, that in their minds, that was blowing their, and they were even afraid to ask. They didn't really even want to know any more details. They kind of let it go at that moment. As a matter of fact, the disciples weren't going to clearly understand about all of the, the suffering of the Messiah and the resurrection of the Messiah until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's when the light bulb was going to come on. That's when it was going to begin to make sense in their minds and their hearts. That was the second time that Jesus uh, revealed that to his disciples. This morning, we're going to see the third time that Jesus brings this up to his disciples. He tells his disciples about his coming death and resurrection again. And all three of these occasions, they all had the same message. They all said the same thing. Jesus was saying the same thing to his disciples, yet he was bringing out a few more details each time he did it. Look at your Bibles at chapter 10, verse 32. Now, they were on the road, just making their, their travel, walking down the road. They were going up to Jerusalem on this particular day. They were making their way towards Jerusalem. Jesus was going before them, and we're told that they were, uh, the disciples, that they were amazed. And they also followed, uh, as they followed, we're told, they were afraid. They were amazed and they were afraid. And then Jesus took the twelve aside and he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. This is the third time now. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. This was something new. And they will mock him they will scourge him, they will spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. He added in a, a few more details about what was to come. And we know as you read ahead, as they took Jesus and arrested him, all of these things came to pass exactly the way that Jesus had told his disciples. We now see Jesus giving even more details to what was to come to pass. Why would he do that? Why all the details? Why getting down into the nitty gritty of it all? Because Jesus wanted his disciples to know that everything that happened to the Messiah, the suffering Messiah, that it was prescribed in heaven by God, it was already ordained by God that these things were going to come to pass. As a matter of fact, it was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy even to the point of him being mocked and him being scourged and him being spit upon. You can read of those prophecies in your Bibles in the Old Testament. And the fact that he would rise again on the third day. It's important for us as Christians. Bible prophecy is important to our faith. 
what Jesus said would come to pass and then when it was fulfilled had great significance upon their faith. It has great significance upon our faith as Christians. As we see the fulfillment of prophecy even in our day coming to pass. I think though as Jesus was walking that day with his disciples and getting into more details about what was to come, the disciples were becoming more and more anxious. They were becoming more and more concerned, uh, not only for Jesus, but concerned for themselves. They knew uh, that Jesus had already told them about the suffering Messiah, that he was going to suffer and be betrayed. They, they knew those things. That was stirring up some, some real fears within their heart. But you see, these were the followers of Jesus Christ. These were the disciples that had left all to follow after him. He had already told them about picking up their cross and following him. And I think that they were becoming more and more anxious about what was coming. They knew that they were on that road to Jerusalem. They knew what was ahead. And I think that they were concerned for themselves. What does this mean for us also? We're told as they, they walked the road on that day that, that Jesus was ahead of them. In a sense, Jesus was walking alone. The disciples were behind Jesus. He was walking ahead of them on that road. All alone. Which is just a, it's a beautiful picture when you think about it. Because here's Jesus making his way to the cross. It was something that he would not be able to take the disciples with him to the cross. He was allowing them to follow in his steps. And they needed to pick up their cross and follow him. But he was the only one that could go to the cross for man's sin. Here's Jesus Walking alone on that road ahead of him, ahead of them. Jesus, I believe, as he was walking, and I can only read into this. It doesn't tell us this, but I can only imagine as our Lord was walking that road, walking ahead of the disciples, that he was focusing. He was focusing on what was ahead. Remember that this is just a short period of time before he was going to go to the cross. His face was set towards the cross. The agony in the garden that he was going to experience as he sweat as if it were great drops of blood. In agony as he agonized in the garden. That was before him still. The shame and the hostility that he was going to encounter from even the Romans and from the Jews, his fellow Jews. He was going to experience all of these things. All of these things were ahead of him. And I have to believe that Jesus was contemplating these things as he walked that road towards the cross. He was walking in obedience. I want you to, 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 to bring your head around that. He was doing the will of the Father. He was going to the cross for the redemption of man's sins. He was being obedient to his Father's will as he traveled that road 
with his face set towards Jerusalem and his face set towards the cross. In a sense, he was being compelled by the Father to, to, to go all the way to the cross. And aren't we glad that as Jesus made that journey towards the cross, I don't believe that there was ever a hesitation of him turning back to turn away. He knew that going to the cross, what that was going to mean for you and I. If you've been forgiven this morning of your sin, then you know what Jesus did here. Lord, I am so thankful. That's why we're singing these worship. Lord, I'm so thankful for what you have done for me, for saving me. Jesus, this day, he was leading, he was ahead of the disciples. I believe that he also had joy in his heart. Even with all of that that was ahead of him, he was walking with joy in his heart. He was walking also with determination in his heart. He knew where he was going. He knew he was fulfilling the will of God. He knew what was going to be the outcome of this. And because of that, he had joy in his heart. The disciples weren't leading that day. They were following. And they were following, we're told, with amazement and fear. Jesus going ahead in obedience. Jesus going ahead with joy. And the disciples with amazement and fear were following. The disciples knew with certainty that Jesus was the Messiah. They had that going for them. They'd already had that revelation revealed to them. Remember on the, the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John? I mean, they, this was that revelation to them. They were convinced that they were following the true Messiah. What they struggled with was that the Messiah was a suffering Messiah. That's where they had the hard, the difficulty. A Messiah who was going to die. A Messiah who was going to give his life as a ransom for many. They didn't understand that the death on the cross, that the resurrection from the dead, that this was all going to be necessary for you and I to have eternal life, for them to have eternal life. That was the part that they could not grasp. They had already been told what was ahead. They were told that the religious leaders would be waiting for them there in Jerusalem. And, and when you get this picture of Jesus leading and the disciples following in amazement and fear, I mean, what a picture as Jesus made his way to the cross. The disciples, I believe, even on this occasion, though, even though they were mere men, even though they were struggling with all these things, they were still in faith making their way with Jesus. I think they still had this great love for Jesus. They, they were still following behind him. Though they were in fear, though they were in amazement, they were still following. They themselves were being compelled by their love for Jesus. They loved him. They even wanted to protect him from it. 
But it was the fact that they, they loved him that it compelled them to keep going, to keep following, even though they did not understand. You see, there are things and many things that we don't understand. How many things have you found that in Scripture, in the Bible, and just in life, that you don't completely understand? Why God? Why this? Why that? But out of your love and your reverence for Jesus Christ, you keep going. You keep following after the Lord. You keep pressing on. After the cross, after the redemption that took place on the cross, we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. After it follows that that hallmark of faith in chapter 11, the men and women that walked by faith. And then it says this in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, uh, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. And then listen to what he says. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. You see Jesus went all the way to the cross for our sin. He went all the way knowing that that was going to give us victory over sin. It was going to give us victory over death. Don't become discouraged. And look what Jesus accomplished for us at that cross. Look what he did. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God today. All of what Jesus did led to glory in heaven. Led to greatness in heaven. We're going to uh, be remembering... Uh, this morning as we partake of communion together, the sacrifice that Jesus, that he gave it all up for you and I. We're going to remember that sacrifice this morning. We're going to be reminded of it again in communion. But first I want you to, to turn back to chapter 9, verse 33. This was on a, another occasion. Jesus Jesus was on... Uh, the road with his disciples. He was heading towards the the city of Capernaum. And when he came into Capernaum, we're told that he entered a house with his disciples that day. And Jesus asked his disciples on that day, he says, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? Remember when we looked at this? What was it that you were disputing about when you were walking on the road together. And there was a real silence for the moment. The disciples, uh, they didn't really want to respond to what Jesus was asking them. It says that they kept silent. 
And it says, for on the road they were disputing this amongst themselves. Who would be the greatest? Put yourself in that place. Here's Jesus uh, making his way towards the cross. And here's the disciples following. And they're having this discussion about who would be the greatest. And so Jesus sits down on that day and that occasion and he calls the 12 disciples to himself. And he says this to them. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and he shall be servant of all. What is true greatness? That's what Jesus is showing by his very life. It's what the disciples needed to learn as they were walking on that road, talking and disputing amongst themselves who would be the greatest in God's kingdom. And Jesus hit the nail on the head with them. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Do you have any kind of ambition in your own heart this morning to do great things for God? I think that all of us should have that desire. You see, there is a godly ambition that we can have to do great things for our Lord because of what he's done for us. But there is an unholy ambition that we can also have where we want to raise ourselves up. We want to be first. We don't want to be last. We don't want to be in that lower position. We want to be in the upper seat. We want to be in that place of recognition quite often in the flesh. In chapter 10, verse 28, after Jesus had spoken with the rich young ruler, Peter said to Jesus on this occasion, he said, Jesus, he said, see, we've left all to follow you. Remember the rich young ruler? He couldn't leave all of his possessions behind because he was rich. He actually walked away sorrowful because he had much possessions. And here we see after that, we see Peter saying to the Lord, we've left all to follow you. Matthew's gospel adds this, therefore, what shall we have, Jesus? Or what do we get, Jesus, for leaving all and following you? You see how our flesh is? What do we get for doing this? You know, are we going to get something out of this? We've left it all. But then look what Jesus says to Peter and to the rest, really, in verse 31. But many who are first will be last. In the last first. Again he says it to his disciples. Are you getting what it means. To have true greatness. In God's perspective of things. It's not always what our perspective is. But what is true greatness. In the eyes of God. Is it being first. Or is it being last. Is it being servant of all. Or serve it to yourself. You know what is true greatness. In the eyes of God. We continue on. 
after that lesson that he was teaching his disciples in chapter 10, verse 35, they're on the road, they're traveling towards Jerusalem, and it was at this time, and I would say that this is one of those times that is the most inopportune times. This is one of those times that it was not good timing for the disciples. There was quite often they said things that it wasn't good timing. This is one of those. Jesus is heading towards the cross. And then two of the disciples were told, James and John. Remember, <clears throat> these were two that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Peter, James, and John. These were two brothers that approached Jesus with a request. Now Matthew's gospel tells us that it was their mother who approached Jesus on this occasion. But look what it says in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that was their father, they came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Can you imagine saying that to the Lord? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Put yourself in that place. You know, what's so amazing to me about our Lord is that he actually works with our weaknesses. He actually works with us, doesn't he? He, he gives grace and he gives, he's patient with us. Even in all of our weaknesses and our failures. Here they are asking of Jesus to give them whatever they want. Whatever their request would be. I'd be thinking, if I was the Lord, I think the way my wife, my, my, I might be thinking, guys, come on. Come on, guys. We're on our way. I'm on my way to the cross. And you're asking me the question, and this is the request in verse 37. Grant to us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. What a request. And not only did they leave out the other ten disciples. You know, there's only room for one on the right and one on the left. In your glory, and, and, and can we have those two seats? We're asking that we could have those two seats. Even when I read that, and I think probably for all of us, it makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Doesn't it? We're sitting back going, man, that's a little uncomfortable. That's awkward. That's a little uncomfortable, the way, the way they're asking the Lord of this. If you were to put yourself in that place and, and begin to ask for those positions. Positions of greatness in the kingdom of God. I think this dialogue that they were having, Jesus was being very gracious to them on that day. 
We know that even the other 10 disciples, if you look at verse 41, look ahead. Even the other 10 disciples were told that when the 10 heard it, when they heard them ask that of Jesus, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Greatly displeased. They didn't like it either. For them to be asking for that. Those positions. What an honor it would be. To sit on the right hand. Of Jesus when we're in heaven. What an honor it would be to be on the right. And even to be on the left. To sit on the right or the left of Jesus in heaven? What an honor that would be for any one of us. To sit on his right, to sit on his left. It's it's not actually even a bad desire, is it? It, 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 Think about it. It's not a a bad desire to, to... Man, I'd love to be sitting on the right or the left of Jesus. Some of you might be thinking, I don't want to sit there. I don't want to be in that place. I'll just be off in the back. And and sometimes it's because of our lack of ambition for the Lord. How ambitious are you for the things of God? That you would actually exert yourself in this life, following hard after Jesus. Doing all that you can to please Him. To follow Him in humility. To be, to be that one that will just serve others. That you someday might obtain a place in eternity that, that God would deem as great. To sit on His right and His left in glory. What a, what a request. But here's the problem. James and John, they hadn't yet learned what the pathway to glory is. They hadn't yet learned that. And many times we, as Christians now, we haven't yet learned that the pathway to glory is a difficult path. It's a hard path. It'll cost you something to be in that place of honor, to be in that place where we might say a place of greatness. They needed to learn that greatness comes from putting others before yourself. By taking the lower seat, by washing the feet of others, As Jesus did. By serving others. You see that's the pathway. To greatness. Jesus did it by example. Before these men. As the days would come. Even in that upper room. As he sat and he washed their feet. And he told them to do likewise. He was leading by example. He was showing them the pathway. To greatness. But it's not always the pathway that we think leads to greatness. I like to be out in front of people. 
I like the title. I like the position. I like, you know, I like the, the accolades. And that wasn't our Lord's example. Look at verse 38. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Oh, you don't even know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? He's speaking about that suffering that he was going to suffer. The suffering Messiah. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Referring to his death that was coming. And they, they said to him, look what they said. We're able. Just put yourself in that. Yeah, I'm able. Yes. Yes, I'm able. And Jesus says to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand, left, is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared. Jesus says to them, with their request, Jesus says, you will drink the cup. You will be baptized John, yes, you will suffer for your testimony of Jesus Christ. James, you also will suffer. And as a matter of fact, you will be the first of the disciples, the first of the apostles that's going to be martyred for me. You will suffer. You will partake of the cup. You will be baptized. History tells us that the Romans, they tried to to boil the Apostle John in a vat of oil. And God supernaturally kept him from death. They turned around and took the Apostle John and they exiled him out to the island of Patmos, which was a Roman prison, an island basically, that they would put people on. John was was exiled out to this prison island by the Romans. And we know that James was martyred for his faith, the first recorded in Acts chapter 12. They would taste, they would partake. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, Jesus tells them, but it's for those for whom it is prepared. Jesus is saying to them, the position that you're asking for in the kingdom is not going to be given just because you ask for it. It's a place of honor in my kingdom. And and that place of honor is going to be given to the faithful. That's who's going to to be raised up into those places. It's going to be to those that are faithful to the end. You see, we all enter into salvation by grace. We don't work for it, do we? 
It's God's mercy and His grace that any one of us are saved. It's apart from any work that you could ever do that God gives you eternal life. But to enter into glory and to enter into that place of greatness, it requires something on our part. It requires something of us that God would reward us someday in eternity. You see, we're called to store up our treasures in heaven. We're called to work in this life, not for our salvation, but God to, to the glory of God, that God would be honored, that God would use you in this life. But you know what? It's going to have eternal dividends in the end. Things that we can't even wrap our head around of what that will look like. But we know that those rewards and glory will be great for those that are faithful. That, uh, those that understand that the pathway to glory, the pathway is the pathway of serving others, denying self, coming to that place. That's the ones that are, that are going to stand before the Lord with true greatness. Verse 41 says that when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. He's talking about the earthly compared to what he, what he calls true greatness. It shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be what? To, shall be a servant? Is a, is a servant above his master? Are we any greater than our Lord who was making his way to the cross to serve us? And yet, they're saying, yes, we're ready to take the cup, taste the cup. We're ready to be baptized. And they hadn't even walked that walk. They haven't even, they haven't even gone to that place yet. Whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever desires to be first, here it is again, shall be slave. The King James says, shall be a servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That's our key verse. People deem this verse as the key verse to the whole Gospel of Mark. Chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Can you wrap your head around that? He didn't come into this world to be served, but to serve. Who's he serving? He served you and I. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Son of God, the Son of Man, coming to earth to serve you and I. And not only to serve, but to give his life a ransom for many. And you see, verse 45, that's true greatness. That is true greatness. 
to be found as one who is serving others, that has learned that the pathway to glory, the pathway to true greatness is by way of humility and service and serving others in obedience to God's will. That's what Jesus Christ left for an example for us. So what is it that makes a person truly great in God's perspective? You see, true greatness is not in a person's title, as I shared. It's not in a position. It's not a, a celebrity status. Look how many people put people up on this this, in the status sphere. They, they, you know, people put people in these positions. Uh, you know, a great baseball player, great, you know, great, you know, politic, whatever. They put people in, in these places of greatness based upon their power, their fame, their prestige. And, 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 and in a lot of people's minds, that's true greatness. Their accomplishments in life. I mean, some of us look at individuals and people, and we, uh, and that, that's a, a great individual. They accomplish something great. Maybe they have material wealth. You know, they're a billionaire. They, they've got it all by the world's standards. And God says, you, you have nothing. They got special abilities that people look at and they say, that's greatness. But that's not what we see in the Bible as the pathway to greatness. The pathway to greatness is probably best seen by reading about our Lord in Philippians chapter 2. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. There's the first one to mark. He took upon him the form of a bondservant. That's another marker. And coming in the likeness of man, men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There's another one. He became obedient to the point of death. There's another one. Even the death of the cross. Therefore God has, here it is, God has highly exalted him. The Father has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee someday is going to bow before him. Every tongue's going to confess someday that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, there's true greatness exemplified in the life of Jesus Christ. For each of us who are living a life here, we're just mere humans. You know, we have flesh to contend with. But if we want to experience true greatness in the eyes of God. We can't do it 
anything uh, we can't we can't do our here's our Lord by example we can't go and try to obtain that any other way than what he showed us here as a servant above his master suffering leads to glory doesn't make sense does it suffering leads to glory well, that's a different pathway my flesh doesn't like that pathway I don't even really want to travel that path the disciples didn't want to travel that path though they said we, we, we were, were able we're able to take the cup and the baptism and you will but you don't even know what that means yet. We need to be careful as Christians about unholy ambition. Jeremiah 45 verse 5 says, And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. The problem is when you're seeking great things for yourself that's the problem seeking great things for the lord wanting to to lift up the lord by your life by your serving others and by your humbling yourself and following in his steps that brings glory to the lord i want to glorify the lord with my life i don't want to have an unholy ambition to do things for myself Jeremiah says do not seek them if you read in the first letter of Peter this is after remember Peter's writing first and second Peter those two epistles at the end of his towards the end of his ministry he's got a lot of years of ministry under his belt He's learned a lot of these lessons firsthand. He's done it wrong and he's done it right. But yet he's learning like us. Peter, in writing that first letter, he had learned after a life of ministry and following after Jesus, he had learned that suffering leads to glory Peter learned that firsthand suffering will ultimately lead to glory he wrote in 1st Peter 5 10 but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while perfect establish strengthen and settle you in other words, suffering in this life, the things that we endure in this life, are going to ultimately lead to your glory. To even that state when you're in heaven with the Lord, God is using these things in our life. This pathway is not always easy. It's a difficult road at times to walk. But we do it trusting that God is doing it. I think Peter learned this he was able to write the letter to encourage other Christians I know you're going through it I know you're suffering I know you got a lot on your on your you know your your backs right now but keep pressing on it's going to lead to something good 
I'll close with these reminders about true greatness. True greatness is seen in a person laying down their life for another. True greatness is self-denial, denying self. True greatness is seen in humility, being humble before God and one another. True greatness in heaven is marked by service, serving God, serving others. That's true greatness. That, those are the ones that the Lord sees. He doesn't see all the other stuff that so often we attribute to greatness. Any work we've done, anything we... say, I don't care about that. I care about you. I care about what's going on inside of you. True greatness, lastly, is seen in those who are faithful to God, faithful to His will, Faithful and following his will in your life, no matter what the cost is. I'm not stopping. I'm going to steady on. I'm going to continue to follow after the Lord, no matter what the cost is. I'm not giving up, no matter how hard the road is. Because I know that in the end, this is all going to lead to something far greater than I could ever imagine. True greatness, by God's standard, is not always true greatness in man's standard. And so we have to distinguish. And the only thing that distinguishes between the two is looking at Jesus, looking at his life, and saying, I want to be like Jesus. That's true greatness.